0: Well, perhaps you've wondered at one time or another, you've asked the big question What is the meaning of all of this? Why does everything exist? Why do things in our world work the way that they work? Why does nature seem to follow a particular pattern? Why do human beings exist? And if we trail those, Ultimate questions down to more fundamental day-to-day questions. You might have asked the question before. Why do I? Exist. Why am I here? What am I made for? What am I supposed to do? These are easy questions to answer and great questions to begin a Sunday morning with as we're just kind of waking up ambling into church Let's tackle some of the easy ones this morning, right? Well, to the last question, if you've ever considered or ever had an opportunity to sit, reflect, ask yourself, why am I here? What was I made for? What is this all about? Good news. To the last question, the Bible gives us an answer that's both simple to articulate and yet it's complex. So we consider all of its implications for our daily lives, how we're to move about and interact with one another and interact with God. The Bible provides for us an answer, and it's an answer that we, as believers crowding into this room each and every Sunday, twice on a Sunday morning, crowd our lives around together. It's what we confess in our prayers and in our singing. It's what we proclaim from this pulpit. And this answer given in Isaiah 43, 6 through 7, reads, Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, and hear this, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him, yes, I have made him. Isaiah 43 tells us that humankind was created to glorify God. It's our purpose, it's what's built in us, it's how we are wired, it's what we were made to do. It's to glorify God. Why are we here? The age old confession would tell us that we are here to enjoy or to know God, to glorify God, to enjoy him forever and we agree with the confession. This morning as we are able to reflect on, consider and look at Psalm 40 together, we have in Psalm 40 a case study. Knowing that our purpose, our reason for being is to bring glory to God, Psalm 40 shows us how. If I'm to bring glory to God with my life, how am I to do it? Psalm 40 provides the answer. And so this is the goal of our lives. The very purpose for which we were created is to glorify God. And now in Psalm 40, we have the answer. So this is the first building block, we would say, of the gospel message If you ask what the gospel is, we would start that explanation and we would say, you and I are made to glorify God. But because sin has ravaged our lives in such a way, we no longer are able to glorify God the way that we ought. And this is why God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death. He rose again, he's now ascended to put all of those pieces back together. So that once putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we can now again glorify God as we ought. This is the whole narrative of scripture, the whole biblical storyline, the ground of meaning for all of life revolves around this reality. And now we have in Psalm 40 an example of how we might go and live in light of that truth. So if you have a copy of scripture, would you turn with me to Psalm 40, To Psalm 40, If you're new to reading the Bible, you stand a great shot at landing in the Psalms if you split your Bible in half as you open it. And as you turn to the Psalms, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers or Psalm numbers in this case. The smaller numbers you'll find there are verses and we'll cover all of Psalm 40 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one that's underneath the seat in front of you for you to use today. And then if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a table in the back with a sign that says free Bibles and we would be glad for you uh, to pick one of those up on your way out. So you're in Psalm 40, I'm in Psalm 40. Would you follow along silently as I read today's passage aloud? Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. But offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart, Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This morning from our passage, we'll see this fundamental truth about our lives as David expresses them, this fundamental truth that we are to glorify God as our deliverer and the giver of our salvation, that we are meant to glorify God as our deliverer, the giver of our salvation. And we'll look at the passage in four parts. So first we'll take verses one through three and we'll see how this passage, Psalm 40, teaches us how to glorify God. In verses 1 through 3, we'll see that God is glorified when you and I keep singing. God is glorified when we keep singing. Verses 4 to 5, we'll see that God is glorified when we keep trusting, when you and I keep trusting. Verses 6 to 8, we see that God is glorified in our deliverance. He's glorified in our deliverance. And in the close of the passage, 11 through 17, we see that God is glorified when we confess our need of him. That God is glorified when we confess our need of him. First, God is glorified when we keep singing. In verses one through three of Psalm 40, David provides an account, sort of a recap of a rescue for which we have no context in scripture. When David says he's been plucked from a pit, saved by God in this way, we have no record in his life of David being in a pit and plucked by God from it. And yet, the story arc of David's life provides us with enough detail that we know he has experienced many moments of despair, of worry, of fear, times that he is in danger from external threats, and times that he is despairing of life itself on account of his own sin. David has been through a lot. And so as we read the words of Psalm 40, we can sort of line up and pair David's expressions and his thoughts with particular events in his life. Furthermore, we have good reason to believe in our survey of Scripture as a whole that David's thoughts in Psalm 40 pair well with what he experienced, as recounted in 1 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. There's even shared language between the passages, and we won't look at all of that today, but suffice to say, David has experienced enough things in life for us to know that what he's expressing here is intricately, intimately tied to his own experience. What he's realizing is true about God has been born out of, bred out of his personal experience and his life If you were to read 1 Samuel and those chapters I mentioned, those recount the narrative when Israel's king, Saul, disobeyed God, sinned against the Lord, and he's removed from his post. And then we see in 1 Samuel 16 when David is anointed as the new king. And the whole situation is fraught with uncertainty and fear, anxiety, and worry. Attempts are made on David's life in a literal way, and he's thrust into situations for which he doesn't feel prepared or adequate enough to fulfill and yet, we find, and this is the thrust of Psalm 40 for us today, that in light in spite of all that David has experienced, God preserves David's life. He keeps him. He blesses him as David takes on his new role as king. And as he perpetuates and continues in this role as a precursor to a coming king, a messianic king who will fulfill all of God's purposes in salvific ways. And so we find that David's laments, his yearnings, his honest thoughts, his expressions of joy, all of this that's bound up in Psalm 40, perhaps parallels some of David's experiences in a tumultuous period. We find this in verse 1. He expresses from the outset, I waited patiently for the Lord. This is David's station as he opens Psalm 40. I'm found here waiting. I have been waiting patiently for the Lord to move, for him to act. And God, he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock. He makes my steps secure. Do you see the transition from danger to safety? David's resolve has been to wait patiently for the Lord to act. And David's experience here, if we're honest with one another, is one that's not so foreign to so many of us in this room today. We face situations from week to week, day after day, from night after night, perhaps even right now, coming into this room, situation after situation that are entirely out of our hands When life seems to threaten to assail us with everything imaginable, we don't know if we can withstand it. And while we cannot be assured in the midst of that of a particular outcome, we can be assured here along with David that the Lord does incline his ear to us when we cry out to him, that the Lord hears your prayer, angst-filled and worry-filled and all. that the Lord is attentive to his children that he provides a listening ear and he will move to act. Whether in deliverance in the ways that we've dreamed up or deliverance of his own making, the Lord will be faithful. Because of this, we can trust the promises of Scripture that that remind us that in our waiting for the Lord, that ultimately our hearts will take courage. Courage will grow in us, Psalm 27. We can trust that the Lord is ultimately, and hear this, he is good, to those who are waiting. He is good to those who are waiting, to the soul who seeks him, limitations three. And that as we wait, the Lord will renew our strength so that we can run and not grow weary, so that we can walk, put one step in front of the other, take one day after another. We can do this and not faint. This is the promise that we have from our God. The Lord, David says, sets his feet upon the rock, He makes his step secure so that he can know, he can trustingly know when he steps out again that he'll find there firm footing, prepared there, secured there by God himself, that he will not ultimately stumble, that the ground will not ultimately give way, that his God will keep him. Perhaps you've been in sort of a physical setting, maybe that gives you an idea of what David is speaking about here. And so in a coastal area like ours, if you were to move further east and kind of bridge upon where the ocean comes in to meet many of our streams and rivers, it creates this sort of marsh land, right? Salt marshes on the coast here in Massachusetts. And you can go there and you can see when the tide goes out that it reveals land that looks firm, that looks solid. And yet, stepping your foot upon it, you could be so easily deceived and find yourself knee deep in mud and silt that has collected there. And on your worst day, perhaps you would have to even call for help. And this is a situation that David has in mind. The muck and the mire, the stuckness of life that you and I so often experience, and perhaps that's where you are coming into a place like this this morning. I've heard of the church over on Beach Street, a friend passed the name of that church along and I just want to go and kind of feel it out a bit but where I am in life is just sort of this feeling where I'm stuck. I don't know that I know what I should know, I don't know all there is to know about the faith, about God and why I should trust him or perhaps more mature believer in the room who feels stuck as well. This is what so often characterizes us as we're waiting on God, waiting on God to move. Spiritually speaking, we know this, that our souls are subject to decay, to fracture, to rot, if left unattended to. If we expect this just to come by osmosis or some other process where it just occurs, that our souls are subject to decay. We become enslaved by our selfish desires, and we're bound up by our sin. And yet, in other instances, we're assailed by external threats, you and I have things in our life that we have zero control over, and those for us create what seem to be insurmountable burdens, even as we sit here this morning, things that are beyond our control. It's evident we're in need of waiting on in constant need of deliverance, and we're in need of rescue. And the Lord hears our cry and we have this promise that he is attentive to our needs. As those united to Christ by faith as believers, we have this great hope that our trials will not ultimately overcome us because we have in God a great deliverer. We have in God a great deliverer, one who with the background music of our lives begins to resemble more of a dirge than it does a melody. We have a God who gives to us a new song that we can sing This is the aim of David's writing in verse 3 when he says that the Lord has put a new song in my mouth. Life together with God begins to look a bit different. I begin to sing of salvation and deliverance and think of freedom in new ways. I have a new song given to me. This is where we derive point one today that God is glorified when you and I, we take that song Take that remembrance and those words and the the lyrics we have of freedom and forgiveness, salvation that we found in Christ. God is glorified when we take that and we keep singing. We keep telling amid suffering, amid trial, depression, all amounts of fear, worry, everything that we're given to from day to day. When we take in the midst of all of that, this song that we've been given, and we say we will keep singing. It's a responsibility I owe to you as a brother in Christ to remind you on your worst day when you're really going through it, that whatever comes our way, we've gotta figure out a way to keep singing. We've gotta figure out a way to keep ascribing honor and glory to our God. It's a responsibility you owe to me when I come in on my worst day, when I'm really going through it, stuck in the mud, stuck in the mire. Mike, we've gotta pick it up. We've gotta keep singing. Amid hardship, depression, trial, persecution, persistent battles with sin, God is glorified when we keep singing praises to him for what he has done. And this is the promise given to us, those who continue pouring their lives out even amid hardship and great suffering in life, even as we're weighed down, that those who sow, who give of themselves and sow in tears or while weeping will go out ultimately with shouts of joy. With songs of gladness, the psalmist reminds us. And this peculiar insistence we have as believers in a space like this, this peculiar insistence we have on waiting on God and singing amid our heavy heartedness is what lets the world know that they can hope too. What reason do I have to hope? What reason do I have to believe? Well, over there on the corner of Beach and Orchard, there's a people singing. That begins to drum up in me, within me reason to believe all the more. If we can keep singing amid our heavy heartedness, the world would know too that they can have hope. It's sort of the baseline of what happens in a place like this, Right? We come in and we sort of see the surface level of a church and people saying hi and we'll eat refreshments together and we'll, we'll do the churchy things. But what's undergirding a lot of what's evident in this room today is this reality that each Sunday as we gather and every Monday through Saturday as we scatter, we're the people who have decided to get up early to come confess that our hope is not in the world's vain promises. That's the confession we make coming into this place, that we're not going to settle for that. Instead, we're banking our hope in God, and we trust that in our proclamation of that hope, and that because we keep singing this new song, that many will see and fear, as the end of verse three says. They'll see and fear, and they'll put their trust in the Lord as well. They'll put their trust in the Lord as well. We greatly desire that we are able to trust the Lord all the more in light of his continual faithfulness to us, It's our great desire that others trust alongside. So we see not only is God glorified in Psalm 40 when we keep singing, we also see that God is glorified when we keep trusting. In verse 4, David relates that the one, and you can read it with me, who puts their trust in the Lord, or who makes the Lord his trust, is one who is blessed. He's blessed. And this is in contrast, David says, to the one who in their pride gives themselves over to lies. The blessed one who trusts God and the one who gives himself over to lies. Instead of immersing oneself in what feels or seems best, David is encouraged here in Psalm 40 to embrace truth as it's found in God. And he does this by reflecting, it says in the text, on the vast amount of good deeds and good works and good thoughts that God has done and God has had. This is David's resolve in five to remember that God has multiplied his wondrous deeds and his thoughts toward us. He says that none can compare with God, that there's nothing he would hold up in comparison. He'll proclaim and tell of them, and yet at the end of the day, As he's engaged in that task, all the wondrous deeds of God are too many to be recounted, are too many to be told. We need to remember God's faithfulness to us in the past, especially because there will be times, and perhaps today is one of them, when you or I come into a place like this and it is difficult for us, difficult for me and you to believe that God will ever show up again. Ask me on an honest day if I thought God might come to my rescue, would speak earnestly and frankly and say, sometimes I doubt that. And there again, in light of Psalm, 40, Psalm 40's truth and what it lays out for us, there's a, an opportunity for a reminder to remember God's past faithfulness to us and let that well up within us, reason to believe that he'll be faithful again. Hear this this morning, that every instance of God's past faithfulness is evidence that he can and will be faithful again. Every instance of God's past faithfulness is evidence that he can and will be faithful again. It's impossible in this space to overstate the good that comes from reflecting on, from remembering, dwelling upon God's faithfulness to us. It should be habitual in our lives When I survey all this life has to offer and I think about the next few days this week and all that I'm going to be doing on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think about the weekend and all that it's going to entail and I think about all the sort of problems lingering in the background and then I begin to think about months ahead and plans that we're making and decisions we'll have to make and all that's entailed within that. When I begin to make that list and you begin to make that list in our hearts and in our minds as we think actively through it, the amount of things on that list that give opening for or leeway to concern or fear or anxiety or worry is outrageous. You don't have to ask me about six months from now to make me anxious. Ask me about this afternoon, right? And this is reality for us. It's in front of us, a cause for concern, worry, fear. And yet, we want to combat every concern we have, every fear, every bit of worry and every excuse with a tangible example, following the pattern of Psalm 40, a tangible example of how the Lord has been faithful to us so that we can yet have confidence that he will be faithful to us again. I think I've shared this in this context before but I remember an old ministry mentor was thinking through these these issues and he once spoke of how he sought to build into his life a regular routine or a regular rhythm of bringing back to the fore of his thoughts the faithfulness of God, the ways that God had been faithful to him over the years. And as he was thinking through just sort of the natural occurrences or natural rhythms in, day, in his daily life, he realized that in the corner of the family room, the den in his childhood home, there stood a tall grandfather clock. And at the same time, every single morning and every single evening, that tall grandfather clock would chime, and you could hear the chime throughout the whole house. And he resolved, because it was already a regular rhythm in his life, that every single time that clock, day or night, chimed, every single time it chimed, he would recall actively to mind a way that God had been faithful to him. And as he began this process, he began to realize how the chime of the clock was no respecter of day, or season, year, situation, or circumstance in life. That clock stood in the corner of the room and it chimed on his best days. When everything was going well and he was doing everything exactly as he should and, and the birds were chirping and the clouds had parted and the sun was out, the clock would chime and he would recount God's faithfulness to him. And the clock would chime too when the clouds set back in and on his worst days and he was immersed in his... In the, ravaging effects of his own sin, and in family conflict, at the news of the death of a loved one, he heard the chime of the clock, and there, in those more palpable, heavy, weighty moments, the call was the same. In good and in bad, high highs and low lows, I'm going to recount the goodness and the faithfulness of my God day after day after day, because doing so builds within me this sort of more natural impulse to trust God again. I trusted him then, I saw him move, I saw him be faithful, I saw him act. I have great reason now to trust him moving forward. I have great reason to trust him moving forward. If we trust what David says here in Psalm 40, we ought never run out of reasons to magnify God's work and his thoughts toward us. For they are more than can be told, he says in verse five. So we spend ourselves, we spend our days recalling to mind God's faithfulness what we help one another do trusting that he will yet be faithful again for believing persons that endless list of god's faithfulness centers on begins with his faithfulness to us in salvation and we see this in psalm 40 as well that god is glorified point number three god is glorified in our deliverance god has made much of in delivering us in verses six through 10 in Psalm 40, we see more direct parallels. We mentioned David earlier. We begin to see similar language between David's life in 1 Samuel and now Psalm 40. We begin to see shared language that cuts across the books and ties them together. And David is highlighting here in six through 10 this revealed truth that's brought forth throughout the Old Testament, that God is not pleased by the mere giving of sacrifices, detached from any authenticity or sincerity or love for him. He's not pleased by mere sacrifices. Verse six says in sacrifice and in offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within me. See, over and over again throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel were to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice When done correctly and in the right spirit, it was pleasing unto God, but often it was not. At times, the offering themselves were not acceptable because the way in which they were presented to God, and this was the reality with Saul, David's predecessor as king, and it's what David is reflecting on here in Psalm 40. You won't be pleased with mere show. There's got to be authenticity to this, more than mere sacrifice, Here, David is recalling the truth about God and is relating that he is the one who has been now prophesied about. And he is the one who, unlike Saul, will be called to joyfully obey. This is what David means when he says that you won't be delighted by sacrifice, but you have given me an open ear. What he's saying is, God, you are now enabling me, calling me to joyfully obey, and you're equipping me to do so. I'm going to be the one who does this. And we find here too in the passage that David's thoughts here not only speak truths about him, but speak about this coming king whom David is a pointer to. This messianic king who will eventually come in the New Testament as we read as the scriptures unfold before us. David is not here only speaking about himself and his own obedience, but this bigger narrative and this bigger arc of greater and grander deliverance that looks like his own, but that is for all people and that is achieved through ultimate sacrifice. God is not pleased by mere sacrifice, but this ultimate sacrifice of the coming king will be what assuages his desire to punish sin. We find here too in verse eight that David delights in God's word, a critical piece of his life in contention with all the depressive thoughts and feelings that he has. He loves God's word and he loves to obey it. This is David's way of continually moving the spotlight off himself. We see in verse nine and 10, we see over and over again that David declare, he has not hidden or concealed the great news of God's deliverance. We find here that God is glorified in deliverance. God is glorified when we don't take credit. God is glorified when we don't take the credit for our own deliverance, thinking that we in some way have manufactured the conditions of our lives just right so that now we appear presentable and acceptable before God. God is glorified when we say, I can't. I'm unable. I'm not enough. I need you. David knows that the architect of his freedom is God himself, and he's intent here on giving him praise for it. Salvation, our deliverance, has a funny way of spilling over onto everything else that we're a part of, everything else that we're involved in, everything else that we say or do. Next week in our service here, we'll celebrate baptism together. Participants will come and they'll publicly profess Christ as their Lord and Savior, and we'll hear testimony next week of the change that God has wrought in their lives. And God is both glorified in the saving itself and redemption, and he is glorified in the sharing of it. He's glorified in the sharing of it. Lastly, we see in similar to point number three, we see in the passage that God is glorified when we confess our need of him. At the end of the day, after all is said and done, we've done what we think we ought, scoring 10 out of 10 on the test, performing really, really, really well, God is yet glorified when we still come to him and say, that's not enough. We need you. Verses 11 through 17 in Psalm 40 ought to be of great comfort to those of us who feel that life is relentlessly throwing things our way that we cannot handle. Unexpected dilemmas and situations we're faced with, uncharted territory we've never navigated, We see that even after David has waited patiently for God, seen God rescue and deliver and act, he's he's recognized God's sovereign plan and his ability to save, that David's circumstances still are not all right. David's put his best foot forward. He's put his faith and his trust and his hope in God, and yet we find him in verse 11, reminding himself that God will not restrain his mercy Reminding himself of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness that will preserve. And listen to 12. Amid all of this, David still says, Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me such that I cannot even see. David's stuck. He's stuck. After he's done all of this, David's circumstances have not all of a sudden turned favorable. And perhaps you've been there. I feel like I'm doing everything I know to do, doing everything exactly as I should be, but for some reason I can't get out of this situation I'm in. I don't have answers. And yet we find here in Psalm 40 that even amid the turmoil, that David banks his hope on the promises of God. In verse 11, we see him recalling to mind, reminding himself, the Lord will not withhold mercy from him calling to mind, reminding himself of God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. These are the promises David clings to as all around him gives way. And note, too, the complexity of his situation. In verse 12, he relates that challenges exist both externally out there, foes around me and enemies around me, and challenges, challenges exist in here. They're in me. They're out there and they're in here. He faces the threat of enemies from all sides and he wakes up daily to the ravaging effects of sin in his own life. This is the constant, the ebb and flow of the Christian life. Perhaps you can say in this season or have before, my problems pile up and they are more than I can count. Perhaps you feel along with David that your heart has failed you. It's a reality for us. And the question remains for us, where do we go when the darkness won't lift? To whom do we turn when we feel like we can't see? David's resolve here isn't just to pray. It's to plead with God. Be urgent, Lord. Verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. He pulls no punches in verse 14. David surveys the righteous call in his life, and he wishes and prays for those that in his life wish to take his life, those who mock him, those who delight in his hurt. He wishes for them to be removed, to be put to shame and dishonor. And this is certainly the plight of the wicked in many situations, though not all. But we see here that David seeks relief from the external threats and leans into the reality of God's salvation for freedom, for his internal burden. In verse 16, he makes this all-important turn. The, The enemies assuage me from afar. External threats abound. This internal problem is one that needs to be sufficiently dealt with. And in verse 16, he addresses this and says that may all who seek you those who are coming hard after you, God, the ones described in Psalm 40, may all who seek you at the end of the day rejoice and be glad that there will be this deep set, deeply attached joy and gladness found in those. May those who seek after you hard in this way, may they love your deliverance, God, and your salvation. And may they say continually in the midst of suffering, in the midst of all manner of undoing in life, may this be their refrain Verse 16, great is the Lord. You see, David at the end of the Psalm is fully aware of who he is and how he is. He's not making any inferences that he has life more put together than he, he more put together than he's pretending it ought to. He's not giving any impressions that he has a lot to even offer, God. Don't have a skill set, God, that you could do more with. I don't have sharp thinking or reasoning abilities that make you do a better job, God. Instead, this is David's confession, 17. I am poor and I am needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. But the Lord takes thought of me. He says to God, you are my help and my deliverer. Oh, do not delay, oh God. Despite it all, those who seek God will perpetually rejoice in God's greatness with the humble admonition that we are desperately in need of him. God is glorified when we come to the end of ourselves and our confidence and our ability to pull this whole thing off, to save ourselves. God is glorified when we know we cannot help ourselves and we confess our need of him. I've been reminded lately, even in spending time with friends yesterday, how well children in our culture sort of model what David is after here, confessing our neediness. Perhaps you have a toddler, a preschooler, or I've been around one lately, and they're sort of bridging into this season of life where they demand more responsibility and more control, and that's mine, and let me do it, right? And yet, in most cases, there seems to be a limit They seem to know their limits. There seems to be a threshold they will not cross. You see, I want to reach that cup, but it actually is too high. I want to open that jar, but it actually is too tight. And upon these realizations, what our children do is they react in one of two ways. One, complete meltdown, let's be honest, right? That won't open and it will never be opened, right? This is the one. But on the other hand, And more often than we're probably willing to admit that child would come realizing they can't do on their own and they'll ask for help. They'll ask for help. They'll confess that in the moment they're needy, that they can't do it alone. And somewhere down the line, somewhere along the way in our more sophisticated outlook on life and in our mature way of going about things, we've lost the ability to confess our neediness. In fact, we've learned to despise it thinking that it sets us behind far too much, that it sets us back way too much if I were to come in a needy man. And yet, in a very real way, Psalm 40 teaches us that that's basically all God wants, is for you and I to confess that we can't do this on our own. He is delighted and honored and glorified when we confess our need of him. Don't despise your neediness And here's the crazy thing too, when the kid asks, can you help me open that? Can you help me reach that? In our culture, the way we respond, we don't mock or belittle. Ha ha, you're two foot tall. Like this isn't our response, right? We're delighted to help. And the same is true with your heavenly father. That when you confess your need of him and ask for help, that he is delighted to come and to meet that need. This is the same with our God. He doesn't want us in our more sophisticated, more mature approach to life to despise our neediness, but he wants us to embrace our neediness this morning as a means of embracing him. We need God today. We're not afraid to ask for his help. And this whole sort of description of the ebb and flow of the Christian life is reminding us that God not only will, but he can deliver, but that he has delivered us in the grandest of ways Psalm 40 is echo after echo after echo of great deliverance, the most recognizable deliverance in all of human history. When our great need and sin debt was met by the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, echo after echo of all that Jesus has done. We don't have an example of David in a miry pit being plucked from it, but we do have an example of one being plucked from death himself. who has been set in a high place, works on our behalf, Echo after echo after echo of Jesus' work done on our behalf. This is the way the psalm unfolds. So when we speak of needing God's help, we don't mean in general only, but we mean in specific ways as well. Every yearning, every word spoken in praise, all of David's reflections in Psalm 40 speak of a greater king who is to come in the storyline, who has now come for us, who embodies deliverance from what plagues us most. Old Testament scholar Jim Hamilton, in reviewing this psalm, lays it over onto the life of Jesus and points out the similarities that as David waited on God, and eventually the Lord delivered him from Saul, Jesus waited on God as well, and he passed through his own suffering to glory. Enthroned in Jerusalem, David is king and organizes worship. Enthroned at the right hand now, Jesus too is about the task of bringing glory to God the Father, a task that will be completed now in the new Jerusalem. David replaced Saul after Saul's sinful sacrifice and Jesus replaced the old covenant, taking on the sins of the whole world proved to be, that proved to be perfection for God's people. We see Jesus completing and perfecting every echo, every instance that we have spoken of here in this psalm as we reflect in its truth and its reality. David proclaimed the good news of God's character, a character that would be embodied in Jesus and proclaimed by him like no one else. David spoke of his own sin, remember, and his enemies, and Jesus took on the sins of his people and he bore the whole burden. Like David, Jesus lived for God and his kingdom. And because of all of this, because the pieces fit together as they do, hear this this morning as we close. Because all of this fits together in the way that it does, you and I can keep singing. We can keep trusting, we can keep obeying. We can keep counting on God for our deliverance together and we can glorify God as we confess day after day our very great need for him. Perhaps you're in the room this morning coming into a place like this, unsure of what you'll experience, and these are the questions you've been asking. Perhaps you're feeling that need deeper now, not on account of any eloquence or any well-put-together words in this sermon, but on account of truth that's stored up in God's Word. Perhaps you're asking questions today about Christianity, about this Jesus that so many put their faith and trust in, who claim to love. What's he about? I want to remind you, week after week here at Hope, we delight in the fact that you are here, and we hope that you'll join us again next week. And we welcome those conversations and those questions and we would love to talk with you further about them. I would be remiss this morning if I didn't urge you to put your faith, your hope, your trust in this Jesus whom we trust as our Lord and our Savior who's taken on our sin debt for us kind of his life, his death, his resurrection, and has now freed us to live lives worthy of this great calling that we have from Isaiah, to glorify God in all the ways that we ought. Believer in the room, let's keep singing. Let's keep trusting. Let's keep counting on God for our deliverance, and let's glorify God in the way that we confess that we would need him.